This week and next week, as we close out this decade, wow, as we close out this decade and begin a new one, uh, we're going to be taking a look at a major theme in the Bible, and this theme is the fear of the Lord. Today we'll look at what the Old Testament has to say about the fear of the Lord, and then next week we're going to jump into kind of part two uh, and look at the fear of the Lord according to the New Testament. And we're going to see how those ideas from old to new are still congruent. They're still related to each other, showing us that Scripture is inspired. But first, let's talk about fear for a moment. Yes, I googled the top fears in America. Some of you remember that gimmick. Uh, And here are a few major ones from a study done last year. Corrupt government officials. Why would that be on there? Pollution of oceans and rivers, pollution of drinking water, not having enough money for the future, not having um, good health, air pollution, extinction of animals and other species, global warming and climate change, the illness of a loved one. whole bunch of environmental fears. It's interesting. Then, of course, we have all manner of phobias, from spiders to heights to public speaking to clowns. I can kind of get the clown one. It's rather difficult to not think of fear as a negative thing because of the consequences of living in a sinful, fallen world. We exist in this broken plane of existence filled with depravity, dangers, anxieties, failed relationships, illnesses, and dark spiritual forces and influences. Perhaps you're here today and that's all you can see around you right now in your life, in your experiences. Perhaps the new year only brings fear and anxiety for you. But the Bible calls us to look up from this broken plane of existence and behold our God and his holiness, to see a bigger picture beyond the brokenness around us. An awesome picture, one that should cause us to tremble within our very souls and beckons us to a place of worship with the one true God, with the only relationship that can, that can extinguish these anxieties and these fears. Our God is the only salvation from this broken world filled with fear, anxiety, uncertainty. But our salvation needs to include a right understanding of who God is and what he has required of us. So today we're going to see how God reveals his glory and protects us from sin by requiring, by expecting us to reflect his holiness. And we're going to explore this through the lens of understanding what it means to fear the Lord our God. Our text today is from Deuteronomy chapter 10. And I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, because everybody's got their paper Bibles with them today, right? Why are you laughing, Jamie? Deuteronomy chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 12, and I would invite you to stand as I read this passage out loud. We stand here at Timberland at the reading of God's word because we believe that this is the inspired word of God, and it carries with it his full authority, and the weight of that is something that we want to show reverence for, which is why we stand. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? 
but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, and the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, f we treasure it knowing that it is inspired by your Holy Spirit and that it reveals your character and, and your desire to be in relationship with us. Father, right now I would ask that you would join us, that you would enter this place with your presence, that you would chase away all anxiety, all distraction, and that we would hear from you in this moment, that we would look at your word and have it transform our lives, that we would be closer molded into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you and we dedicate every aspect of this message to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Before we dig into this passage, let's take a look at the context for a moment because it's super important in understanding these verses. The majority of Deuteronomy is a series of farewell speeches that the 120-year-old Moses is giving to the nation of Israel just before they go into the Promised Land. Forty years of wandering through the desert have passed. Moses is an old man. He does not get to go into the Promised Land himself. Joshua will be leading the Israelites. But before they enter the Promised Land, Moses is going to provide them with a review with a reminder of what God has commanded in the law, but also a reminder about how they, as a nation, have rebelled time and time again. All of chapter 9 and the first part of chapter 10, Moses reminds Israel about the times that they have stirred the Lord's anger because of their rebellious hearts. Lest they think the promised land is owed them because of their good works, Moses tells them this, in chapter 9 of Deuteronomy, starting in verse 4. Check this out. This is crazy. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust the Canaanites out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. 
that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. Man, over and over again. For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Wow! What a scathing admonition. So we have these promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this nation is the undeserving recipient of God's grace, his mercy, his patience, and his faithfulness. Kind of like we are the undeserving recipients of God's grace through the cross. These people, the Israelites, they have the book of Leviticus, the book of the law, laying out the boundaries of what it means to be in right relationship with God, what it means to be in right relationship to each other, what it means to be holy and devoted to God. And in it is the call to be holy themselves over and over and over again. And now here they are near the Jordan River, about to enter the promised land, and Moses tells them to remember. Then in this passage today, Moses starts with a question. What does the Lord require of you? What should be your response? And the first requirement is what? Fear the Lord your God. And it's stated twice in this passage, emphasizing the importance of this idea, restating the gravity of what it means to accurately understand and know who God is. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? Isn't fear a bad thing? Isn't that a product of sin? Well, let's take a look. The fear of the Lord in Hebrew is referred to as a bound phrase, which is two words denoting one thought, which means you can't separate the words and, and try to define fear by itself through the dictionary and then Lord by itself through the dictionary and then mash them together. It doesn't work that way. These two words in Hebrew, this bound phrase, is yirat Adonai. Adonai is Lord, but, but yirat is more than just the idea of fear or, or dread or terror. Yirat Adonai is the fear that belongs to the Lord, given and owed to him alone. It is the awe and majesty reserved exclusively for the presence of the one true God. The prophet Isaiah experienced Yerat Adonai during his vision of the throne room in Isaiah chapter 6. And it caused him to explain, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Isaiah rightly understood the magnitude of what he was witnessing. Yerat Adonai is recognizing God is King of kings and Lord of lords, of his immense holiness, his power, his perfection. But it's also a realization of our own unworthiness of being in his presence. And that should cause all of us to tremble, to fall down in humility, 
and to cry out, woe is me, I am undone. But then a seraphim touches Isaiah's lips with a live coal from the altar, an allusion to the purification from the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ on the cross. And the angel tells Isaiah, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because God created man for a relationship with him. As one Hebrew scholar notes, Yirat Adonai, the fear of the Lord, does not denote a cringing terror of God, but a reverential awe at the glory of his presence as he daily condescends to be involved in our lives. Did you catch that last part? That's pretty amazing. We are to be in awe because the God of the universe wants to be involved, wants to share his presence in our lives, wants to be in relationship with us. And this awe begins with a right understanding of who God is, followed by the humble realization of how we fall short of his glory and his presence. But why should we fear the Lord? The fear of the Lord comes from a right understanding of who God is. So let's look at three reasons why we should fear him. Now, we could spend a really long time here on these three reasons, because there's more than three. We could spend an entire series of Sundays on this. Today, we're just going to get a, a brief snapshot from our text, three reasons why we should fear the Lord, why we should have that reverential awe at his presence. I encourage you to do further study on this on your own because we will not be able to do it justice today. The first reason is we fear the Lord because he is our Father. Some people wrongly believe that the idea of God as Father is purely a New Testament concept introduced to us by Jesus, the Son of God. But Scripture does not support this idea at all. Moses confirms God as Father in Deuteronomy 32, 6, when he says, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? He's talking to the Israelites again, stubborn people. Is not he your Father, the Lord your Father, who created you, who made you, and established you? Or Isaiah 64, 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Notice how both passages mention how God is the creator. This is why we recite this in the Apostles' Creed each Sunday. This is why it's at the very beginning. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Our faith starts with this foundational truth because it sets his authority. Everything belongs to God because he made everything. Our text says it in verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. God has the authority because he is the creator. But with this comes a relationship. In verse 15, he says, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Even this stubborn people, even this rebellion people, God has set his heart toward them. This creator God loves his people, which is why, believe in, why we believe in God, the Father Almighty. But what does it mean to fear God as Father? This kind of fear of the Lord reveals the awe and authority a father is designed to have over his children. 
My beautiful wife laments to me from time to time how she can repeat commands to our children to gain, that she has to repeat commands to our children to gain compliance. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. But she says, this is her lament, but she says, you can tell them once or just give them a look and they obey. It doesn't seem to matter we're both in charge. It doesn't seem to matter that the consequences are the same and exercise the same. There's just something about the authority of a father, the gravity of his words and his presence, exercised with love and consistency that draws results. This fear of the Lord is based on a love relationship, accurately pictured as a father to his children. Because the father loves his children, he is going to set guidelines to train them and to protect them. These are not arbitrary, they're not selfish, they're not frivolous, but rather designed to keep that love relationship between them open and pure and to protect the children from danger. There are some times that we need to fear danger, especially as children. For instance, we teach our children not to touch the hot stove. But the primary reason for that warning is to protect the child. It's the same way in the laws that God has given to us as human beings. They are there as boundaries for our protection. The rules and guidelines God has set before us are meant to protect us from danger. And what is that danger? It's called sin and the consequences of sin because he loves us and he knows best. They are meant to teach us how to thrive in that relationship with him and with each other. He gave his people laws and commands and calls, them, calls his people to love him and to serve him. Why? Because it says in verse 13, it is what? For your good. It is for our good that he sets these rules in place. Psalm 94, 12 says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. And Proverbs 3, 11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. We are blessed by and through the law, through our heavenly father's discipline, through his boundaries, in his training because he loves us and delights in us and wants the best for us everything he does is for our good even when it doesn't feel good but this fear denotes a relationship it's not just a list of rules psalm 103 makes this abundantly clear let's read it psalm 103 starting in verse 13 as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who what? Who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. I can use my dad look or my dad tone on other people's kids and it does nothing. So frustrating. <laughs> Why? Because they're not my kids. That relationship doesn't exist. 
and they don't fear me. Now, I might have the, the power to like forcibly make them comply or crush them because I'm a big, scary ogre, but I don't have the power to make them willfully comply. Now, God, who does have that power, who does have the power to make everyone comply to his will, in his wisdom, gave us the ability to choose, to choose to love him, to choose to obey him. God is only father to his children, to those who willfully comply, who obey and love him, who he has invited to experience the joy and freedom found only as a member of his family. When we bend our will to his and delight in obedience to his commands, then we are his children. Those who are not his children will not be protected from the ultimate consequences of sin. For a day is coming when God Almighty will force that compliance on everyone, when every knee shall bow, when every voice will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether they want to or not. But by then, it's going to be too late. By then, those who have rejected God, those who have rebelled against his rightful rule, will spend an eternity being crushed by the awesome power and holiness of his authority. Now, I want to be sensitive and spend a little bit of extra time on this point today. Identifying God as Father can be tough. The word Father has a very earthly connotation for us because it brings to mind our earthly fathers. Some of us have godly, loving fathers, but others, for others, this word has a negative meaning because your father was anything but godly. For some of you, your father caused great harm by his words, his actions, or his absence. And so you might find yourself equating the heavenly father with your biological father, which might either distort your understanding of who God is or, or even repulse you from giving him that title. If that's you today, I want to encourage you to bring that hurt to him, to lay it at his feet, to acknowledge it to his face, to ask him to reveal his fatherly love for you in a new and dynamic way today. Why? Because knowing and understanding our God as Father is the beginning of freedom and healing because we can start recognizing those boundaries and we can start recognizing the good that he has planned for us. Without understanding and experiencing the love of our Heavenly Father, you will not be able to understand his discipline or his authority. So, we fear the Lord because he is our Father. But we also fear the Lord because he alone is worthy of this reverence and awe. Verse 17 of our text says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Yirat Adonai, the fear of the Lord, is exclusive to God Most High because nothing and no one else is worthy. Moses ex extols the greatness and the might and the awesomeness of our God, and he should know based on all, the wit all that he had witnessed. Remember the burning bush back in Exodus 3, 
Moses is a shepherd in exile, and he sees a bush burning but not being consumed. Then God calls out to him from the bush and says, Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am. Then God says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So what does Moses do? He hides his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Why? Because he knew he wasn't worthy, just like Isaiah in the vision. Later in the story, we see God obliterate the gods of Egypt through his mighty plagues after Pharaoh demands, who is this Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? We don't have time to go through all of the the plagues this morning, but there's an awesome correlation between the plagues and the gods of Egypt. It's super cool. And the plagues are designed to show the powerlessness of these gods. Each one is an, an affront, an attack on the gods of Egypt, showing this is the God who is commanding you to let his people go. This is that God. This is the God who is God of gods, who is Lord of lords, and is the only one worthy of Yerat Adonai, worthy of the fear of the Lord, and not just because of his power, but also because of his perfection. David exclaims as much in Psalm 19. This is awesome. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I love that line. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. There is no blemish in it. There is no sin in it. Why? Because it's the awe and the wonder reserved exclusively to the one true God whose rule is without end, whose glory and majesty and might are limitless, whose word is perfect, whose law is pure, who exercises his authority without partiality, who cannot be bought or bribed by anything we say and do, whose word is perfect. There is no one like our God, a being infinite in power, infinite in perfection, and infinite in compassion. And this compassion extended to those who are outside the covenant promises of Israel. Our text says God loves the sojourner, giving him food and cloning, the traveler, the person who's coming from afar, who's not part of that covenant. God loves them as well. Psalm 145.9 says the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Even if you can't recognize it, even if you're in rebellion of him, his mercy is still there. Even to those who despise and reject him. Isaiah 30, 18 says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He's anticipating. He wants to show you grace and mercy. He's waiting to pour it out on you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. 
We fear the Lord our God because he alone is worthy of that awe, of that reverence, because of his power, because of his perfection, because of his compassion. And just as he alone is worthy, our third reason, our third reason is he alone is faithful. His word is true, which means everything he has promised will come to pass. The last verse in our text, verse 22, says, Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Moses is calling the people to remember the promise God gave to Abram back in Genesis 15. The Lord brought Abram outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to. Obviously you can't. Then he said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. Even in the midst of Israel's rebellion through their time in their desert, even though they worshipped a golden calf and refused to enter the promised land the first time they arrived, even though they grumbled and complained and said, slavery was better than this, let's go back to Egypt. Through all of that rebellion, God's faithfulness to his word remained. Yirat Adonai, the fear of the Lord, includes the humble reminder of how we are not worthy of God's faithfulness, but receive it nonetheless because he is the definition of faithful. But let's be clear. The Lord is faithful as he exercises reward and discipline. On multiple occasions, God exercised some pretty significant discipline on these rebellious Israelites in the desert. Go read it sometime. It's pretty intense. But his discipline is always for our good, to purify us, to show us what holiness is, just like our text says. Psalm 119, verse 73, expresses this really well. Your hands have made and fashioned me, Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. Why? Because, because he's the work of his hand. Because I have hoped in your word. I know, O oh Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Did you catch that? Because of your faithfulness you have afflicted me. Because I needed to learn something. There was an impurity in my life or I was going in the wrong direction. I was heading towards danger. And because of your faithfulness, you disciplined me for my good. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm striving to be able to say to God, thank you when he disciplines me. That's, that's some tough stuff. But it comes with a realization and understanding that, that it is for our good. Just like when your child is reaching for the stove and you smack his hand away and he starts to cry. And he doesn't understand, but you, but you understand. That smack saved him from something much, much, much worse. So it is the same with our Heavenly Father for us. 
our God is faithful to train us in righteousness, to protect us from sin and the consequences of sin, which is why he will discipline us, those whom he loves, his children, for our good to keep us from evil. Even in our sin, our Lord is patient and faithful. Psalm 86, 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But keep in mind, this means God is also faithful in his promise to judge and extinguish evil, to destroy it in the end. Psalm 37, 29, 27 says, Turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. God's faithfulness to all his promises should cause us to tremble in reverence, awe, and anticipation. For those who do wicked in his sight, who reject his gracious offer to be a part of his family and enjoy these everlasting rewards, his faithfulness should cause them to tremble in fear and dread because his justice cannot be thwarted. He cannot be bribed. He loves justice and will meet it out without partiality. But for those who belong to him, for those who call him father, Yirat Adonai, the fear of the Lord, comes from a right understanding of who our God is and why we should fear him. For he is our father. He alone is worthy. He alone is faithful. As his children, as his children, we reflect this holiness to the world around us as a means of glorifying him, to show the world around us who is our daddy. Because we're reflecting him. But this holiness requires us to stay on the right path. These requirements, this, this plan, these laws that God has set out, these boundaries are there to keep us in right relationship to him, to protect us. So what should be our response to this? What does God ask of us? Our text says it. What does God require? To walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, to serve him and hold fast to him. In a word, he requires holiness. God reveals his glory and protects us from sin by requiring us to reflect his holiness. God is glorified in and through our obedience when we are devoted to him and all his commands. When we tremble and obey him as Father, when we bow down before him as the only worthy God, when we cling to his faithfulness even during the discipline. 
For it all points to the right understanding of who our God is. The right, the correct, the holy, the awe, fear of the Lord. A right understanding of Yirat Adonai also protect us, protects us from a certain complacency in our faith. The prophet Isaiah exclaimed, Woe is me, I am undone in the presence of God. But if you are in Christ, the very presence of God Almighty dwells within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Do you know this? Or have you become complacent as well? Have you lost that awe and that reverence reserved exclusively for God Almighty? The Lord requires holiness, meaning total devotion to him, separation and total devotion to him, because this is the ultimate good. Fear of the Lord is a good thing. It keeps us humble. It reminds us of who he is and what he's called us to be. Just as these Israelites reap the benefits of God's promises through no merit of their own, we, too, reap the benefits of our salvation through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection through no merit of our own. Respond, then, by circumcising your heart. Not an outward physical expression, not a deed, not a work. You can't bribe God with your works. He wants your heart. Our God is just in all that he does and how he shows compassion and cares for those in need. He's saying, do likewise. For our God is worthy of our praises, worthy of our heart and our soul and our mind. And remember, his promises are true. All of them. As we enter this, this new year, as we close out this year and look forward to the next year, I implore you to stop. To stop looking at all the brokenness around you just for a moment. Right now, just for a moment, stop looking at all the brokenness around you. To set aside all the distraction, the pain, the anxiety, the fear, and look up. Look up and know and experience the awe, the fear, the majesty of our God. I promise you that when you do this, all of those other things will lose their power over you. They'll lose their significance. They'll lose their control. When our focus, when our, when our gaze is at the only one worthy of our gaze, that good starts covering the rest. If you are here this morning and, and you don't have a sense of excitement for the new year, or even if you do, even if everything is going great in your life right now, guess what? That's another form of complacency as well. It's another danger. This reverential awe, we are called to do that daily, hourly, minutely. We're, we're called to live in that awe because that is the greatest good. In a moment, we're going to take communion where we celebrate 
part of that majesty, part of that plan of God coming to us because we could not come to him. Moses could not come further to the bush because he was not worthy. Only through the blood of Christ are we worthy of his presence. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder of your greatness, of your holiness, of your worth. Father, we thank you for the reminder of our utter need for humility. In the midst of the distractions and cares of this world, thank you for that reminder. And Father, if there be any in this room who have not bent their knee to you, who are still living in that rebellion, Father, I pray that you would stir in their hearts the truth of your word. Father, we are so unworthy. You are so amazing and so awesome, and yet you pursue us. And you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to, to come to us to show us the way to you. And it is only through repentance, it is only through joining your family that that's possible. So we thank you for that. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your pursuit. Help us to be mindful of that. Help us to re remember, not just on Sunday, not just when we talk about it, but help us to remember daily of our, of our, our reverence for you, to be in awe of you regularly. Help us remember that your discipline is there for, for our good, even when it doesn't feel good. Thank you that you are faithful and that you are always pursuing the good in us. Thank you, Father. Amen. I'd invite the men to